Thank you, Arctic Acoustic. I love the music. And welcome back to Hanging with History. This is season one, that miracle that happened, that one time. And we're up to episode 56, Cromwell Unites. Weirdos Unite was how I expressed it in episode 54. Well, this episode will see the uniting of England, Wales, Ireland, and Scotland in the Commonwealth. We're fortunate enough to have Leafy Green back with us. She is still in the northern climes fighting the good fight. And don't be surprised if you suddenly hear a couple of clips from the movie Cromwell. I beseech you, in the bowels of Christ, think it possible that you are mistaken. That's how we ended last episode. With Cromwell back from taking Ireland with a skillful combination of force, money, and diplomacy. Charles II is in Scotland, reluctantly under the thumb of Argyle and the Covenanters, with many of his most ardent royalist supporters massacred by these same Covenanters. So Cromwell's gathering an army in northern England to invade Scotland and deal with the Presbyterian Covenanters and the king. New regiments are raised, including one for George Monk, a former royalist commander from a place called Coldstream. That's the origin story of the Coldstream Guards. They had to raise a new regiment because the New Model Army veterans were unwilling to serve under a former royalist. As with the Protestants in Ireland, Cromwell wanted to win with love and persuasion. Money would be a major weapon. They would bring their own supplies instead of trying to live off the land, and this somewhat limited the size of the army he could invade with. In this campaign, he would constantly be outnumbered. The Scottish general Leslie had numerical superiority and aimed to increase it by avoiding combat throughout the summer, constantly retreating whenever Cromwell advanced. Leslie was planning that disease and hunger would weaken Cromwell to the point that he could be destroyed. Cromwell's forces lacked tents, and so did the Scots, who lacked many things. So, in a wet and cold Scottish summer, Cromwell's men were mainly sleeping outdoors in wild country, getting sicker and sicker with their number of effectives diminishing. Leslie was an experienced and successful commander under Gustavus Adolphus in the Thirty Years' War, and had a successful invasion of England under his belt also during the Civil War. So it's interesting that at the end of summer, he made a misjudgment. But I want to say that while Leslie managed the war very well strategically by refusing battle and retreating all the time, this was a horrible season for Scotland. I'm not exaggerating when I say that fanatical Presbyterians were in charge. They did one of those things that fanatics do so well. Let me guess. They had a purge. That's it. Somehow, they decided that God would favor them more if they got rid of all the ungodly men from their army. So the people in charge started purging the army even while it was needed to fight. Hundreds of experienced officers were sent home. Thousands of men. How could they even tell if someone was ungodly? These ministers thought they knew what they were doing, but inevitably, many of the experienced soldiers were of a different mindset than the godly. And of course, whenever you get rid of people, for being impure in thoughts or having unacceptable opinions, you were, you were going to make a hash of it. There would be a lot of fresh injustice 
unfairness, and resentment created. Many would feel they were being misled and would not trust the leadership. It's a terrible situation when an army can feel the incompetence at the top. Oh, absolutely. We know that trust in both the competence and integrity of leadership is essential for any organization who wishes to be successful in its endeavors. You've described what's needed for an army to win a campaign as well. Cromwell retreated to the port of Dunbar, where he could be more easily supplied, and he wanted to ship out the worst of the hospital cases. And Leslie formed the idea that Cromwell was greatly weakened by sickness and hunger and was planning to leave Scotland by ship, and that he'd already shipped out his big guns. He appeared to believe the English lost their stomach for fighting. I wonder if he was projecting. It could be. Living with the arrogant, hectoring Puritan ministers all around you must have been a pretty weird life for sure. Probably hellish, but we don't know. Anyway, it led to some pretty weird history. There's a lot of strange history about what happened next. The Scottish army was after the English army now, because at least Leslie, and maybe many others, believed the English were on their last legs. The day before the Battle of Dunbar, the Scots were arrayed on the heights above the port town of Dunbar in an unassailable position. They had strong geographical advantages and outnumbered the English. And here is where a lot of historical myth-making starts. The Scots on the heights could not attack the English below and win a final victory, so they came down to outside the town, deployed for battle, and went to sleep in the fields, planning to attack in the morning. The myth is that Leslie wanted to stay up there, in defense, but that the Presbyterian ministers, shouting things like, Smite the Amalekites! overruled him and forced him to come down to Cromwell. About half the history books I have on this topic basically repeat this story. But it is a myth. The Scots had to come down. For one thing, their own supply system was too inefficient to feed everyone up on the heights. And their soldiers were starving. They had to come down. And besides, they seemed to feel that this was the time to take advantage of their numerical strength and English weakness. So their soldiers laid down in the grass and wheat fields to spend a wet night, and the officers mainly rode off to spend the night somewhere warm and cozy. But what about Cromwell and the English? Well, Cromwell's whole deal with this campaign was to bring the Scottish army to battle. This was his plan all along. He had the best army in the world and knew it, and getting the Scots to fight was the hard part. Back home, in Parliament, many wanted him to torch Scotland, turn it into a wasteland so the Scots would have to fight to protect their country. But Cromwell, first and foremost, wanted to persuade the Scots to his cause. Milton's expression, He who overcomes by force hath overcome but half his foe. Oh, I like that one. In other words, you could catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Applies to a lot of fields, actually, doesn't it? Cromwell was trying to convince the Scottish people, or at least the middling sorts, to support the English government post-conquest. And to do that, he needed to bring down the power of the Kirk. He had to weaken the power of the ministers by persuasion. You can see it in his propaganda. England allowed for lay preachers. In Scotland, only ordained ministers could preach. Uh, Here from one of his pamphlets, quote, 
We look at ministers as helpers of, not lords over, the faith of God's people. Are you troubled that Christ is preached? Is preaching so inclusive to your function? Your pretended fear, lest error should creep in, is like the man who would keep all wine out of a country, lest men should be drunk. It will be found an unjust and unwise jealousy to deny a man the liberty he hath by nature, upon a supposition he may abuse it. When he doth abuse it, judge." It's very clever and smuggles in the idea of natural liberty to people who have very little. Cromwell had this consistency about the religious rights of lay people. In Ireland, he criticized the priests the same way. Quote, so anti-Christian and dividing a term as laity and clergy were unknown to the primitive church. It was your pride that begat this expression. It is for filthy lucre's sake that you keep it up. That making people believe they are not so holy as yourselves, they might for their penny purchase some sanctity from you that you might bridle, saddle, and ride them at your pleasure, unquote. And this kind of persuasion, this alternative way of showing the light of God, worked pretty well. Edinburgh Castle surrendered far before their position was desperate. Just like Ireland, Cromwell won more people over by persuasion and diplomacy than by force. But you said there was a Battle of Dunbar. Yes, it was difficult to bring about, but it was vital to have a set-piece battle between the purged forces of the godly Kirk and Cromwell's independence, these two visions of the elect. In effect, there needed to be a battle so God could choose, so everyone could see that God preferred Cromwell's vision. Oh, this is like Odin, the war god, choosing the more worthy army for victory. I know, it is amazing how persistent that idea is. This concept of persistence is one of the new trends of historical writing. Maybe I'm falling victim to an intellectual fad, but it is interesting. And it was Cromwell's strategy, persuade and demonstrate. So we left the Scottish army with confident leadership, or possibly internally broken leadership, and the men sleeping out in the grass overnight, their matches and powder getting wet, their officers away sleeping in the warm. Trust in God and keep your powder dry. <laughs> yeah, planning, <laughs> planning an attack in the morning light. Well, Cromwell and his commanders, names you've heard, Lambert, Pride, Garrison, Monk, had looked over the Scottish positions as they deployed and confidently planned to destroy them. In fact, the story told by one reliable witness was that only a few minutes after Cromwell was praying for the Scots to come down off the heights and fight, they were spotted coming down. In Puritan minds, this was like a message from God that they were going to win. So they planned a pre-dawn attack in darkness and pouring rain. They also noticed that the Scots had crowded a lot of cavalry in a small space by the sea, one of the hazards of huge numbers. The cavalry would not be able to maneuver properly. So Cromwell attacks before the Scots are ready. Our swords are in God's hand, and our faith is in the Lord. Before the officers have returned before much of their match was lit. Match? 
Armies were still using what they called matchlight, rolls of string laced with gunpowder to burn slowly to fire their muskets. Flintlocks were still rare. Overnight in the rain, the Scots extinguished most of their match to save it. Match was always a high-consumption item that you tried to preserve if you could. Simply put, the English attacked before the Scots were ready, and the Scots ran away. Run away! Run away! Losses on the field were light. Less than a thousand killed on both sides, but about half the Scottish army subsequently surrendered. And this changed everything in Scottish politics. The Kirk lost influence, as they had clearly been wrong about God. Charles II gained power, was coronated at Scone, the Stone of Scone being traditional. Cromwell convinced many Presbyterians to adopt a policy of neutrality and even some cooperation. Others went crazier and said they'd not been pure enough and needed to purge even harder. Group 2, the anti-royalist faction, got stronger as Charles took power. Leslie was now convinced there was no way to fight Cromwell. Just no, no more battles. But Charles was now taking command gradually. Leslie had avoided Cromwell successfully for months, though basically Cromwell was now free to conquer lowland Scotland up to Stirling, so this was fine. Cromwell finally tricked Charles by maneuvering so that Charles could place himself in Cromwell's rear and march on England. This was another clash of visions. Charles and the Royalists believed that they could march into England and the people would rise up to support him. Cromwell believed any chance for a battle was great. My army is invincible because God is on my side. But if Charles was wrong, his plan was insane. Why would it be insane to return to England? He had some level of popular support, but the Scottish army did not. In the last invasion, the one that ended in disaster at Preston, the Scots ravaged the countryside to feed themselves. And they had to do it again this time. Ravaging armies are a total disaster for the people. The Yorkshire militia came out under Fairfax to oppose them. The army from all over in England could converge on the Scottish army. And who was behind them? Cromwell was following behind them. This was An insane idea. A small force under Monk stayed behind to complete the capture of Scotland. Monk was not Cromwell, however, and he committed a massacre with with really no good excuse at Dundee. All the English forces converged on Charles at Worcester, which is really pretty far into England. Only a few hundred English royalists joined Yeah, I told you this idea of invading with the Scottish army was a bad one. And then, on the one-year anniversary of the Battle of Dunbar... Oh, Lord, thou knowest how busy I must be this day. If I forget me, do not thou forget me. Cromwell crushed them with ease, totally and utterly. The Battle of Worcester. No pursuit needed, 
The Scots basically all surrendered same day. Did they capture Charles II and execute him? No. Maybe the Puritans should have been less confident that God was on their side. He escaped. Like Marmaduke Langdale, dressed up as a milkmaid? Uh, Much like that. He was in disguise. He was too big a guy to pretend to be a milkmaid. Sometimes, as a woodcutter, his face stained with walnut juice to make him look like a laborer. Other times, disguised as a Puritan gentleman. For six weeks... Six weeks? Yeah. It, it, It wasn't like you could just get on a bus or hide in a car trunk to get across the country. It was just he and a few friends, and they had to constantly scout as the Republic's troopers were chasing them. And it would certainly be the most harrowing six weeks of his life. There was something like the equivalent of a $10 million price on his head. But, in the end, hundreds of people helped him. Many were Catholics, and that memory of help when he was desperate may have contributed to his deathbed conversion to Catholicism. The despised, abused Catholics helped him, and not one turned him in for the reward. And he had some near misses. One day he spent the day in an oak tree while Republican troops searched the woods. Another time his horse threw a shoe in a town full of troops looking for him. And he was not easy to hide. I mentioned he was big. He was six foot two, very unusually tall for the time. Black hair and dark eyes, and he could never master the local accent, so he always had to pretend to be from far away. And simply shutting up was a hard task for him, since he was very talkative. But yeah, he escaped to Paris, and he had to move to the United Provinces when Cromwell told the French to kick him out. What gives Cromwell the right to kick people out of France? Oh, well, these days we might say might makes right, somewhat cynically, but Cromwell was more on the right makes might side of things. And he was so careful to be right in that Puritan way that was both highly rational and highly religious simultaneously. Remember episode 51, the Royal Navy is suddenly number one, and the world understands the new model army is number one. And they also tried to remodel Scotland. They tried to weaken the Scottish nobility, whom many historians call mafia-like, and strengthening the middling sort in Scotland. They gave free trade to Scotland, and Scotland seemed to prosper. But just as things were starting to get better, Cromwell dies in 1658, and the people decide to bring back the Stuarts in 1660. You would think they could find a better solution. Well, first, Oliver's son Richard was put in charge, but he didn't want the job. When some of the generals threatened to oppose him, Richard just refused to allow anyone to be killed to keep him in office. He resigned. So then it seemed like a coalition of generals might rule, but the natural rulers did not want that, and also a change had happened in the army. Private soldiers made it clear to their generals, in many cases, that if they tried to fight each other for dominance, they would refuse to serve or even shoot their generals. Monk saw the opportunity to bring back the king, and everyone seemed okay with that idea. It was basically a bloodless return, with trivial exceptions like a fifth monarchist uprising easily suppressed. So that was it a commonwealth undergirded with individualistic assumptions about the essential equality of persons, essentially vanished like a puff of smoke. 
its social basis of the elect was too small, and they didn't care enough in the end about keeping power. And all the compromises of political power led to a sort of disillusionment, I suppose. Anyway, Leafy Green, thanks for coming on the program, sticking with me over the two weeks. I gotta love your voice. I didn't know you had voice training until just now. Thanks for asking me to join in, Harold. This is a really fun experience, and I've been so delighted to learn how much in-depth knowledge you have about history. It's been just a whole other side of you that I haven't known before. How cool. Okay, we'll figure it out. <laughs> All right, Cammy, you, you just had the chance to hear episode 56 with Leafy Green. And what'd you think? I'm so glad Leafy Green has joined you. She's been a great guest and I, I hope you invite her back. Yeah, hope she comes back. I really enjoyed learning about Cromwell and his different ways of handling the army and using force, money, and diplomacy to take over and, and win his battles. But I gotta say, I'm a little sad because this is the end of the Cromwell story, I think, for us, right? Next episode, there's a little bit more about him, a little bit of uh, historical speculation, a historical what if, but yeah. All good things must end. All good things must end. I and mean, it was a little sad to go, oh, we must be finishing up with Cromwell since he died in 1658. So I, I got to ask, what were his final days like? Where was he when he passed? Do we know? He was pretty sick for the last several months. Uh, he caught some species of malaria in Ireland that plagued him for the rest of his life. Malaria in Ireland? Yeah, Ireland. I didn't realize that was yeah. a thing. Yeah, there was uh, a version of malaria in Europe up until the 1970s when that Anopheles mosquito, the malaria carrier, was finally eradicated. And that's one of the strong impetuses people had later to, you know, finish the draining of, of marshes and fens. Makes the mosquito sense. is a pretty horrible thing. A mosquito can be a very horrible thing. We mostly think of them as pests, but yeah, they can be very horrible. So he's very sick with malaria. He dies. Was he home with his, his yeah, wife? Yeah, he died at home. He died in his own bed with some question about whether he truly was one of the elect because he couldn't feel God at the time. And his friends gathered around and, and reassured him that his one conversion experience was enough and that indicated that uh, he was truly one of the elect. He was one of the saints who would go to heaven. So Cromwell himself wasn't sure if he was one of the elect after all his... Well, at the end. At the end. Yeah. He, yeah. I mean, Christ on the cross seemed to feel the same way, right? True. It just seems kind of a sad ending to such a amazing thinker and, and life, someone who made affected so much change yeah. that, that he would die unsure of his... Status. Yeah, we talked about that with uh, Big Doy too. Uh, how Mother Teresa was, you know, felt cut off from God at the end as well. And to wrap things up, Charles he escaped to Paris eventually. Yep, came home to mommy. Came home to mommy, and but they the, kicked him out. Oh, and then at the end, he on his deathbed converted to Catholicism. Yes, in uh, 1681. So he had a decently long reign as king, uh, which we'll cover 
in a, or a three episode arc uh, coming up. Oh, cool. We get to go in depth then on, on Charles. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't cover the soap opera E elements of it that much. <laughs> um, you know, he had his uh, 14 or 15 mistresses and uh, many of them at the same time and a large number of illegitimate children. Uh, I have a source that says eight. I have one that says 14. I have another that says 17. Well, 14 to 15 acknowledged bastards. mistresses. It would be maybe yeah. hard to keep track, I guess, whose was whose. And well, and some of his mistresses were cheating on him. Uh, Barbara what? Palmer, one of, you know, sort of a woman who is sort of acknowledged as one of the greatest beauties ever, but with very little in the way of brains, was also having an affair with John Churchill at the same time. But I'll cover that just a bit. And this is before we had our easy paternity tests and, right. and such. So there'd be really Good no point. way to know what the real lineage yep. was. You have to wait till they grow up and see what they look like. And that's not always reliable. I yeah. mean, come on. <laughs> well, and that fact actually was uh, the kickoff or... I don't know what you call it, the catalyst of of the, the fall of the Stuarts. Because when James II's baby was born, a Catholic heir to the throne, everyone insisted, no, that wasn't his real son. The baby was smuggled into the birthing room in a warming pan. <laughs> and it was just a trick that the real baby had died, or all the children of that queen were sickly and died young. Therefore, she could never have a healthy one, right? Yep, but it was totally the thing that was the catalyst that made the people rise up, that made Dutch William cross over from the United Provinces into England and uh, gave us the glorious revolution. Soap operas before soap operas. Yeah, oh my god. <laughs> well, everyone needed entertainment at some point in yeah. time. Well, some people will assert that Charles II was popular because he, um, and I'm certain that it's partly true, because he relaxed a lot of the Puritan restrictions. And it was like, oh, the good times are back, you know, relax, party, let's all have fun. Mm -hmm. Well, he seems like quite a character, spending six weeks escaping, disguising himself as different workers and such, when he was, was hard to disguise. So I think I'm going to look forward to hearing more about him yeah, he would talk about that six-week period in his life um, over and over again, basically to everyone he ever met. So the people who were around him um, heard the stories over and over and over again for decades. It's like an adventure is his, his time Absolutely. out there. And it truly was. But Alan, Alan Massey makes this somewhat cynical point that, that the people around him got really tired of the stories and <laughs> didn't want to hear it anymore. <laughs> Probably were a bit like the old fisherman story, too. The fish gets bigger and bigger. Oh, it could well be. Don't know. <laughs> the, the adventures took even more daring turns as he aged and remembered. Yeah, that'd be consistent with human nature. So, but he seems like somebody we're going to enjoy getting to know better. Well, we'll hear about him. Let's see if we enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, with your your soap opera stories here... Sounds yeah, like I'm going to, like I said, I'm going to try to minimize the soap opera stories. For example, I won't tell the story of one of his friends. Insert it aside here. Skip the rest of this episode if you want to avoid a really scandalous and gross nobleman behavior and decide. If you keep listening, don't get mad at me. Who stood out on the balcony 
of a hotel in London naked and proceeded to act out all various kinds of, uh, oh, sexual deviancy with, you know, various props. Oh. Yeah, he poured out a glass of wine and washed his prick in it and then drank it off and poured another and drank to the king's health and... Quite scandalous. Oh, yeah. Yep. And then you're telling us this story. Told a sermon, and he ended it by taking a crap on the balcony in front of everybody. He was picked up by the magistrate the next day. Thank you. And fined an enormous sum. He had to pay an enormous bail of 500 pounds, which is just enormous because, of course, it was, you know. While everyone was enjoying it, it was also totally scandalous and can't have this sort of thing. But uh, King Charles II famously paid his bail. Oh, how generous of him. And <laughs> he, <laughs> his friend said, uh, I am sure I am the first in history to ever be fined for taking a shit. Maybe he was, but I guess there's got to be a first for everything, huh? <laughs> yes. Okay, well, I, I don't know. I think we might have to dig a little bit into some of these soap opera scandalous stories just for the fun of it. All right, we'll give you a little bit, just a taste. Just a taste? Okay, yeah, we'll take it, that. I don't think it contributes to the miracle. No, but it gives everybody vivid pictures and <laughs> okay. and keeps, you know, a little fun into the history. I think for now I'm just going to look forward to hearing all the scandalous things around Charles II. Okay. All right. Thank you, Cammie. And we'll do this again next week. All right. Please click subscribe or follow on your podcast app. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend about it. If you don't, please tell an enemy. Thank you for listening. Just remember, you can always reach me at Harold at HangingWithHistory.com. That's Harold is H-A-R-A-L-D at hangingwithhistory.com 